morning, everybody. I'd like to start this morning in Romans chapter 1. So you're welcome to open your Bibles or follow along in your notes. Romans chapter 1, and I'd like to begin in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So what I'd like for us to observe here in this passage is that there is a creator, who is God, and there is the creation, which has been made by God. And those who suppress and or reject this truth are without excuse, because these facts are clearly observable within the creation itself. One more verse to take a look at, Hebrews 3.4. Hebrews 3.4. Which says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so we have every house, which is a building, has a builder, and all things, which is the creation, has a creator, who is God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to assemble together this morning and worship you and study your word, and we ask that you would prepare our minds for, and hearts for worship, and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your creation, your eternal power and divine nature. Be glorified as we study this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're in chapter 7 of the Baptist Confession of Faith of God's Covenant, and there are three paragraphs in chapter 7, and today we'll take a look at paragraph 1. But first, I want to point out that every worldview attempts to answer the following ultimate questions. Number one, why is there something rather than nothing? Number two, what's wrong with the world? Number three, is there any hope? And number four, how does the story end? And the Christian worldview can be, in response to these questions, can be summarized as creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And this fits in perfectly with our discussion, because if you remember from last week, I quoted Sam Renahan from his book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant, and His Kingdom, about how covenant theology covers, by necessity, the entirety of the scriptures, beginning with Adam and creation, and ending with Christ and the consummation. So we have those bookends of creation in the beginning, and consummation at the end. Anybody else need a handout? So three objectives today as we look into paragraph one are, number one, creation. We're going to look at creation and the creator-creature distinction. Number two, the fall, including federal headship and original sin. And we'll just get in our, our foot in the door with redemption 
the need for covenant as a consequence of man's fall. So let's go ahead and read paragraph 1 of chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. So what I want us to see in the, in the beginning here as an overview is that the, the necessary starting point for our understanding of covenant is creation, and specifically the creator-creature distinction. Now I like to use Webster's 1828 Dictionary of American English whenever I come across a word that doesn't sound as familiar in uh, my hearing because the, uh, a book was written uh, in a previous time period. I often get amplification from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. So I looked up the word creature, and he defines it as that which is created, every being besides the creator, or everything not self-existent. The sun, moon, and stars, the earth, animals, plants, light, darkness, air, water, etc. are the creatures of God. Now, did you notice that the entry mentions creator with a capital C. And then it specifies that this creator is God. And then it lists a number of uh, things that have been created by God, the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. Now, if you were to examine the curriculum in the average government school in America today, what do you think you would be taught regarding the origin of the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, animals, plants, light, darkness, water, etc.? You probably hear something like one big accident, random chance, big bang, naturalism, millions of years, Darwinian macroevolution. But you wouldn't hear anything about God. And so the observation is that pervasive within our culture is the elimination of the distinction between the creator and the creature because there has been an elimination of the creator altogether. And sometimes people's beliefs within the church are influenced by teachings that occur outside of the church, and we want to avoid those kind of errors. Now, when we go out into the street and share the gospel with people, we often encounter someone who says they don't believe in God, and we typically use a simple, logical syllogism to prove the existence of God. And you remember in the beginning we uh, referenced Hebrews 3, 4, which says uh, every building has a... uh, is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so our syllogism is is based somewhat on that verse and other verses like it. And it goes something like this. When you see a building, how do you know there was a builder? You can't see him, hear him, touch him, taste him, or smell him. But the building exists, and so therefore there was a builder. When you see a painting, how do you know there was a painter? The painting exists, and therefore we know that there was a painter. When we look out and see creation, how do we know that there was a creator? The creation exists. And therefore we know that there was a creator. Now you might say, isn't that a big step to go from building, builder, painting, painter, to creation, creator? Well, if we just look at what the Bible says, for example, in Psalm 19.1, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
And we referenced Romans chapter 1 in the beginning where uh, it basically says that the evidence of creation is so conclusive that people who reject God as the creator are without excuse. Now, our catechism asks the question, question 12, it asks, what is the work of creation? Answer, the work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And you'll notice that one of the proof texts given there is Hebrews 11.3. And it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared, or framed, or created, depending on which translation you're using, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And this is what we mean when we say, if you've ever heard of the phrase creation ex nihilo, ex nihilo is from the Latin, which means from or out of nothing. And so when it says that that the worlds were prepared or created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. In other words, God spoke the world into existence out of without any pre-existing materials. And Psalm 33, 6 says, and, and verse 9 also says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So when we look at these verses, just a sampling of verses from the Bible, I think you'll agree that there is no hint of any atheistic, random chance, big bang, naturalistic, macro-revolutionary process that requires millions or billions of years. But number two, and perhaps more subtle, there's, I think there's no liberal Christian notion of theistic evolution. Now, are you, are you familiar with the term theistic evolution? It's the idea that, that somehow God started the process, he got put the ball in motion, but then kind of released it to operate under uh, some naturalistic process. And theistic evolution continues to be taught today in various places. In fact, just this past week, an article came across my newsfeed on the very subject, and in his most recent controversy, Andy Stanley had this to say from the pulpit in his multi-campus uh, megachurch in uh, Georgia. He said, quote, There is no necessary conflict between evolution and theism. End quote. But he also gave a reason why there's no necessary conflict between evolution and theism. Because he said that the reason that God communicated it in the way that he did, by putting it in such words as he spoke and it happened and so forth, was he said that God was, quote, accommodating to a person's capacity. So, come on, what was the capacity of ancient, 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 ancient slave culture Hebrew? Was there any way in the world God could explain to them how he did it? No. End quote. So, I, I point this out as an example of some of the compromises that we see not just outside the church. We do expect it outside the church in the government schools, but it can also have an effect on our thinking when there are compromises inside the church. And uh, we want to be prepared to give an answer for why we believe what we believe. And so, aside from the verses that we already quoted regarding God speaking the world into to existence, um, in just a little bit I'm going to give you another exegetical basis for rejecting theistic evolution. But first I want to address another uh, challenge that's sometimes raised against us when we say that we believe in creation. Because sometimes people will say, 
Well, you say you believe in creation. Are you against science? I mean, don't you believe in science? Well, within that question, there's a, a fallacy. It's called equivocation. It's, it's uh, changing the meaning of a word within a sentence or within an argument. Because have you ever heard there's a difference between operational science, which are things that we can observe, we can test in a laboratory, we can see it in a test tube, that's operational science, we, we believe that. But there's a difference in, between that and origin science. Origin science is where, where did the universe come from? Because we can't repeat uh, creation from nothing in a test tube. We can't observe it. We can't go to the laboratory and, and see it happen all over again. So this is uh, another word for this fallacy. It's called the bait-and-switch fallacy. So yes, as Christians, we believe in science, but, but we believe in operational science, things that we can test and observe. Origin science is a different category, and so let's don't equivocate on the word science. But speaking of liberalism, I, don't want, I want to read to you a little passage from J. Gresham Machen's book on uh, Christianity and liberalism on the subject of the awful transcendence of God. This book was written in 1923, and again, when we come across a word that doesn't sound exactly the same in our ears, the word awful, when you think of awful, you think of bad or distasteful, something like that. But uh, being written in 1923, the word awful, from Webster's uh, 1828 dictionary, is a combination of the word awe and full, and it's something that strikes with awe, that fills with profound reverence as the awful majesty of Jehovah. So Machen says this about the awful transcendence of God. He says, In the Christian view of God as set forth in the Bible, there are many elements, but one attribute of God is absolutely fundamental in the Bible. One attribute is absolutely necessary in order to render intelligible all the rest. That attribute is the awful transcendence of God. From beginning to end, the Bible is concerned to set forth the awful gulf that separates the creature from the Creator. Modern liberalism has lost all sense of the gulf that separates the creature from the Creator. Its doctrine of man follows naturally from its doctrine of God. But it's not only the creature limitations of mankind which are denied. Even more important is another difference. According to the Bible, man is a sinner under the just condemnation of God. According to modern liberalism, there really is no such thing as sin. At the very root of the modern liberal movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. So I think what Machen is pointing out here is that with a correct understanding of God's transcendence, we will end up with a high view of God and a low view of man. High view of God and a low view of man. And we want to maintain that distinction because in reference to paragraph 1 of chapter 7 that we just read, uh, James Ranahan argues that the necessity of covenant is rooted in the creator-creature distinction. So we want to maintain that proper distinction. So to summarize this little segment, why is there something rather than nothing because of creation? <clears throat> and we want to uphold all that the Bible says about creation and maintain a proper distinction between the creature and the creator. So next, let's answer the question, what's wrong with the world? So we'll take a look at the fall, federal headship, and original sin. <clears throat> now, have you ever heard the, the phrase, in Adam's fall, we sinned all? You know where that comes from? You ever seen this little book here? This is called the New England Primer. 
This is the first textbook in public schools in America. This little book was uh, written in 1690. This particular edition was uh, 16, uh, 1777. And in this little textbook con is contained the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Mr. Cotton's Catechism, and there's a little uh, way of learning the alphabet, way of learning the ABCs. And for the letter A, it was taught in public schools in America for almost 100 years. There was a 1930 edition of this book, and it says, In Adam's Fall, We Sin All. And so that's a very uh, good way to encapsulate the idea of federal headship. <clears throat> federal is based upon the Latin word foeduce, which means covenantal, so federal headship is covenantal headship. And chapter 6, paragraph 2 of our confession says this, Our parents, by their sin, fell from their original righteousness in communion with God, and we in them, notice it says we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So when it says we fell in them, that's what we mean when we say federal headship. We, we sinned in Adam. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's, we are part of that all that sinned in Adam. And it goes on to say, All becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. And so this is what, it, what we mean when we talk about total depravity. So let me give you an illustration that will hopefully help because sometimes there's um, some confusion regarding total depravity. Has anybody ever seen one of these devices? Yes. Anybody ever use one of these? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm taking this illustration from, uh, from Jim Oreck's book uh, called Mere Calvinism. You might be familiar with Jim Oreck because we do, in, in the kids' uh, Sunday school class, we do the Baptist Catechism set to music. And Jim Oreck uh, wrote the songs that we use in the kids' Sunday school class with the Baptist Catechism set to music. Uh, but he also wrote this book, uh, Mere Calvinism, and so this illustration comes from the book. And it goes something like this. I take this sponge, and I drop it in a bucket of vinegar. I take it out. It's going to be saturated with vinegar. If I squeeze the sponge out, no matter how hard I squeeze, the sponge is still going to be damp with vinegar and smell like vinegar. And if, even if I were to take this sponge and to cut it up into different parts... Every part would still be damp with the vinegar and would smell like vinegar. And so, Oryx says similarly, while no human is completely saturated with sin, every component of human nature has been adversely affected by sin. If we separate and examine the various components of human nature, every part is wet with sin and smells like sin. So that's what we mean when we say total depravity. Question 20 of the Catechism asks, into what a state did the fall bring mankind? Answer, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And you'll notice that it, that references Romans 5.12 as a proof text. And this is a very key text for us to understand when we talk about the concept of uh, federal headship. Romans 5.12 says, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, that all have sinned. And so, by one man, Adam, 
sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And you remember from Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, remember earlier when I mentioned to you, I wanted to circle back and, and give you an, an exegetical basis for rejecting theistic evolution. And this is a verse that I would go to. Because follow with, follow with me on this. By one man Adam, sin entered the world, and death by sin. Okay, so when did death come into the world? After Adam sinned. After Adam and Eve sinned. So prior to Adam and Eve's sin, there was no death. You follow me? Based on what this verse says. If we hold to a concept of Darwinian evolution, where one organism comes and it lives and it dies and morphs into some other organism, and eventually over a period of millions of years, because it requires a long period of time in order for that process to work, there's a, period, there's a series of death that takes place over time. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you have Darwinian evolution. You have millions of years of death culminating in eventually a frog becoming a prince, who is Adam and Eve. But that's in conflict with this verse. It says, by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So that's one of the reasons that I would reject the notion of theistic evolution, because it puts death before sin. So, now, have you ever heard this question, back to federal headship, do we sin because we are sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? Which one? Now, are we sinners because we sin? Okay, well, think about this for a minute. It is kind of true, but there's a, there's a subtlety. Because if we're sinners because we sin, in other words, do we become sinners after we've committed sin? That's Pelagianism. Okay, because Pelagius believed that man, uh, uh, people are born without a sinful nature. They just have sins they do in time. Whereas uh, the biblical view, I would say, is that we start as sinners because we have a sinful nature. Even before we actually commit an actual sin, we have a sinful nature. We've inherited from Adam. That's the idea of federal headship. So, careful there. You don't want to be unorthodox on your answer there. Question 21 of the Catechism asks, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell? And here we're going to define more precisely uh, this original sin. So it says, the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists in, number one, the guilt of Adam's first sin. Number two, the want or the lack of original righteousness. Number three, the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Do you see the distinction there? So we have the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of original righteousness, the corruption of our whole nature, that's the original sin, together with the actual transgressions which proceed from it. Now remember when we read earlier from Machen, he says at the very root of the modern liberal movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. There are professing Christians, particularly liberals, who do not believe in original sin. Uh, you may have heard the name Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a Pelagian. He didn't believe in original sin. And there are some other various ways that that finds expression today. But when we look at some of the proof texts that are given here, 
Titus 1.15, To the pure all things are pure, but to those that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So remember when we were talking about all the faculties and parts of soul and body? Even their mind and conscience is defiled. Genesis 6.5 says that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How do you like that assessment of mankind? Now you say, well, wait a minute, don't people do some good things? I mean, don't people build hospitals? And, uh, you know, there's some people over there right now in Ukraine providing humanitarian relief. Aren't those good things? Well, those are good things, but they're not meritorious in terms of us earning uh, uh, reconciliation with God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You say, well, you know, one of the things that you hear these days is, well, so-and-so has a, has a good heart. They have a good heart. Well, what does the scripture say about that? It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. So this is the assessment. This is what springs from our sinful nature. Romans 3, uh, verse 10, starting in verse 10, says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seek after God. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the seeker-friendly movement? What exactly does that mean? I think it has a meaning, but if we were going to have a true seeker-friendly service, I don't think anyone would show up because it says there's none that seek after God. Uh, Psalm 10.4 says, The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. So I think we can say, though, that if we see someone who appears to be seeking after God, it's because God has first sought him. We love him because he first loved us. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You guys are familiar with the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? You know, there's a backstory to that hymn. Uh, Robert Robinson is the author of the hymn. In 1743, when Robert Robinson was just eight years old, he lost his father. Angry, bitter, and fatherless, Robert rebelled in excess through his teenage years, drinking, gambling, and causing trouble. But God broke into his heart through the gospel preaching of George Whitfield. Several years later, he followed the Lord into ministry and was later inspired to write, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And what did he say in that hymn? He said, Jesus sought me when a stranger. When I was wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. And of course, we don't derive our theology from the hymns. The hymns should derive their theology from the scripture. But when, they're, when they do so, they express that truth. Jesus sought me when a stranger. Romans, uh, continues in ver- Romans 3 continues in verse 13. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Uh, my son is attending community college right now through Running Start. And he's taking classes at community college, but he's also participating in some of the activities on campus, like volleyball and chess club and engineering club. And I was having a conversation with him the other day. He'd come home, and he said, You know, Dad... He goes, I'm, I'm enjoying some of the activities on campus, but I've noticed something. He goes, everybody cusses a lot. And he goes, I hear all these words, and it kind of it makes me want to use the words too. 
And I said, yeah, that's why you got to be careful who you hang out with. I mean, we want to be in the world, but not of the world. We want to be salt and light, but you know, bad, corrupt, bad company corrupts good morals. But what does the scripture say? People's mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Apart from you know, a regenerating work of God, uh, changing our hearts. Verse 15 continues, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What's one of the main topics of debate in our nation, in our national conversation right now, and even really in the world? What'd you say? What's something else? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Abortion. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's what Scripture says, and that's exactly what we see. That's the part of the national conversation right now, whether those things should be legal or not. Chapter 6, paragraph 4 of the Confession continues to emphasize the total depravity of man. It says, From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Just a few more proof texts here. Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is at enmity, it's at war against God. For it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. It cannot be subject to the law of God on its own. Colossians 1.21 says that you were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So when we look at all these things, the point that we want to, to emphasize here is that when people tend to minimize their sin or to minimize their depravity, then they tend to diminish the distinction between the Creator and the creature. Or as Machen said, the awful gulf that separates the creature from the Creator. We want to maintain a high view of God and a low view of man in accordance with what the Scripture teaches. Or when theological systems tend to elevate man's ability to choose God on his own, there's a tendency to diminish the distinction between the Creator and the creature. Further complicating the human predicament, we cannot, by our obedience, merit any kind of reconciliation with the Creator. A couple of proof texts there I'll let you read on your own, but James Renahan summarizes by this little segment by saying that obedience is requisite for rational creatures, but it does not, in and of itself, even in an unfallen state, merit a reward. It is simply the obligation of the created being whose purpose is to serve the Creator to do His will, whatever it might be. And so, paragraph 1 that we're studying says, continues to say, yet they could never have attained the reward of, right, of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, let me give you a little illustration that I think will, will, will make this practical. I, I heard this illustration from J. Vernon McGee, so I want to give proper credit where credit is due, but he talked about this game called Jumping to Catalina. Now, Catalina Island is about 20, just a little over 20 miles off the coast of California, and so let's say that we were to go down and play this game called Jumping to Catalina, where we all go down to the Santa Monica Pier, and we run as fast as we can, and we take a jump as far as we can, and see who can jump the farthest to make the jump to Catalina. And one person may jump so far, and one person may jump a little bit farther, but basically, no one is going to make the jump to Catalina. And that's basically what we're talking about here. None of us, 
by our own effort can make the jump. There's an awful gulf that separates us from the Creator. And so we need His intervention to provide us um, reconciliation to Him. You're familiar with the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And a verse in the hymn says, Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. So what's wrong with the world, the fall? And is there any hope? Yes, there is. There's redemption. And we'll talk about that next week. So let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you and have fellowship together over your word. We thank you that you have regarded our helpless estate and have shed your blood for our souls. Be with us now as we go into our time of worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.